Section 26 of La Sommoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. La Sommoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Vistelli. Third part of Chapter 6. Oh, I'm not complaining of your work. I know it's perfection, said Madame Gouget. For instance, you've done this cap splendidly, only you could bring out the embroidery like that. And the flutings are all so even. Oh, I recognize your hand at once. When you give even a dishcloth to one of your workwomen, I detect it at once. In future, use a little less starch, that's all. Gouget does not care to look like a stylish gentleman. She had taken out her notebook and was crossing off the various items. Everything was in order. She noticed that Gervaise was charging six sous for each bonnet. She protested, but had to agree that it was in line with present prices. Men's shirts were five sous, women's underdrawers four sous, pillowcases a sou and a half, and aprons one sou. No, the prices weren't high. Some laundresses charged a sou more for each item. Gervaise was now calling out the soiled clothes, as she packed them in her basket for Madame Couget to list. Then she lingered on, embarrassed by a request which she wished to make. "'Madame Couget,' she said at length, "'if it does not inconvenience you, I would like to take the money for the month's washing.' It so happened that that month was a very heavy one, the account they had made up together amounting to ten francs seven sous. Madame Couget looked at her a moment in a serious manner. Then she replied, "'My child, it shall be as you wish.' I will not refuse you the money, as you are in need of it. Only, it's scarcely the way to pay off your debt. I say that for your sake, you know. Really, now, you should be careful. Gervaise received the lecture with bowed head and stammering excuses. The ten francs were to make up the amount of a bill she had given her coke merchant. But on hearing the word bill, Madame Couget became severer still. She gave herself as an example— she had reduced her expenditure ever since Gouget's wages had been lowered from twelve to nine francs a day. When one was wanting in wisdom, whilst young, one dies of hunger in one's old age. But she held back and didn't tell Gervaise that she gave her their laundry only in order to help her pay off the debt. Before that she had done all her own washing, and she would have to do it herself again if the laundry continued taking so much cash out of her pocket. Gervaise spoke her thanks and left quickly as soon as she had received the ten francs seven sous. Outside on the landing she was so relieved she wanted to dance. She was becoming used to the annoying, unpleasant difficulties caused by a shortage of money, and preferred to remember not the embarrassment but the joy in escaping from them. It was also on that Saturday that Gervaise met with a rather strange adventure as she descended the Gouget's staircase. She was obliged to stand up close against the stair-rail with her basket to make way for a tall, bare-headed woman who was coming up, carrying in her hand a very fresh mackerel with bloody gills in a piece of paper. She recognized Virginie, the girl whose face she had slept at the wash-house. They looked each other full in the face. Gervaise shut her eyes. She thought for a moment that she was going to be hit in the face with a fish. But no, Virginie even smiled slightly. Then, as her basket was blocking the staircase, the laundress wished to show how polite she, too, could be. "'I beg your pardon,' she said. "'You are completely excused,' replied the tall brunette. And they remained conversing together on the stairs, reconciled at once without having ventured on a single allusion to the past. Virginie, 
then twenty-nine years old, had become a superb woman of strapping proportions, her face, however, looking rather long between her two plaits of jet-black hair. She at once began to relate her history, just to show off. She had a husband now. She had married in the spring an ex-journeyman cabinet-maker, who recently left the army, and who had applied to be admitted into the police, because a post of that kind is more to be depended upon and more respectable. She had been out to buy the mackerel for him. "'He adores mackerel,' said she. "'We must spoil them, those naughty men, mustn't we? But come up. You shall see our home. We are standing in a draught here.' After Gervaise had told her of her own marriage, and that she had formerly occupied the very apartment Virginie now had, Virginie urged her even more strongly to come up, since it is always nice to visit a spot where one had been happy. Virginie had lived for five years on the left bank at Gros Caillou. That was where she had met her husband while he was still in the army. But she got tired of it, and wanted to come back to the Goutte d'Or neighborhood where she knew everyone. She had only been living in the rooms opposite the Gougets for two weeks. Oh, everything was still a mess, but they were slowly getting it in order. Then, still on the staircase, they finally told each other their names. Madame Coupeau, Madame Poisson. And from that time forth they called each other on every possible occasion Madame Poisson and Madame Coupeau, solely for the pleasure of being Madame, they who in former days had been acquainted when occupying rather questionable positions. However, Gervaise felt rather mistrustful at heart. Perhaps the tall brunette had made it up the better to avenge herself for the beating at the wash-house by concocting some plan worthy of a spiteful, hypocritical creature. Gervaise determined to be upon her guard. For the time being, as Virginie behaved so nicely, she would be nice also. In the room upstairs, Poisson, the husband, a man of thirty-five, with a cadaverous-looking countenance and carroty moustaches and beard, was seated working at a table near the window. He was making little boxes. His only tools were a knife, a tiny saw the size of a nail-file, and a pot of glue. He was using wood from old cigar-boxes, thin boards of unfinished mahogany, upon which he executed fretwork and embellishments of extraordinary delicacy. All year long he worked at making the same size boxes, only varying them occasionally by inlay-work, new designs for the cover, or putting compartments inside. He did not sell his work. He distributed it in presents to persons of his acquaintance. It was for his own amusement, a way of occupying his time while waiting for his appointment to the police force. It was all that remained with him from his former occupation of cabinet-making. Poisson rose from his seat and politely bowed to Gervaise, when his wife introduced her as an old friend. But he was no talker. He at once returned to his little soul. From time to time he merely glanced in the direction of the mackerel placed on the corner of the chest of drawers. Gervaise was very pleased to see her old lodging once more. She told them whereabouts her own furniture stood, and pointed out the place on the floor where Nana had been born. How strange it was to meet like this again after so many years! They never dreamt of running into each other like this, and even living in the same rooms. Virginie added some further details. Her husband had inherited a little money from an aunt, and he would probably set her up in a shop before long. Meanwhile she was still sewing. At length, at the end of a full half-hour, the laundress took her leave. Poisson scarcely seemed to notice her departure. While seeing her to the door, Virginie promised to return the visit, and she would have Gervaise do her laundry. While Virginie was keeping her in further conversation on the landing, Gervaise had the feeling that she wanted to say something about Lantier and her sister Adèle, 
and this notion upset her a bit. But not a word was uttered respecting those unpleasant things. They parted, wishing each other good-bye in a very amiable manner. "'Good-bye, Madame Coupeau.' "'Good-bye, Madame Poisson.' That was the starting point of a great friendship. A week later, Virginie never passed Gervaise's shop without going in, and she remained there gossiping for hours together, to such an extent, indeed, that Poisson, filled with anxiety, fearing she had been run over, would come and seek her with his expressionless and death-like countenance. Now that she was seeing the dressmaker every day, Gervaise became aware of a strange obsession. Every time Virginie began to talk, Gervaise had the feeling Lantier was going to be mentioned. So she had Lantier on her mind throughout all of Virginie's visits. This was silly, because, in fact, she didn't care a bit about Lantier or Adèle at this time. She was quite certain that she had no curiosity as to what had happened to either of them. But this obsession got hold of her in spite of herself. Anyway, she didn't hold it against Virginie. It wasn't her fault, surely. She enjoyed being with her, and looked forward to her visits. Meanwhile, winter had come, the Coupeaux's fourth winter in the Rue de la Goutte d'Or. December and January were particularly cold. It froze hard, as it well could. After New Year's Day, the snow remained three weeks without melting. It did not interfere with work, but the contrary, for winter is the best season for the ironers. It was very pleasant inside the shop. There was never any ice on the window-panes like there was at the grocer's and the hosier's opposite. The stove was always stuffed with coke and kept things as hot as a Turkish bath. With the laundry steaming overhead, you could almost imagine it was summer. You were quite comfortable with the doors closed and so much warmth everywhere that you were tempted to doze off with your eyes open. Gervaise laughed and said it reminded her of summer in the country. The street traffic made no noise in the snow, and you could hardly hear the pedestrians who passed by. Only children's voices were heard in the silence, especially the noisy band of urchins who had made a long slide in the gutter near the blacksmith's shop. Gervaise would sometimes go over to the door, wipe the moisture from one of the panes with her hand, and look out to see what was happening to her neighbourhood due to this extraordinary cold spell. Not one nose was being poked out of the adjacent shops. The entire neighbourhood was muffled in snow. The only person she was able to exchange knots with was the coal-dealer next door, who still walked out bareheaded despite the severe freeze. What was especially enjoyable in this awful weather was to have some nice hot coffee in the middle of the day. The workwomen had no cause for complaint. The mistress made it very strong, and without a grain of chicory. It was quite different to Madame Fauconnier's coffee, which was like ditch-water. Only whenever Mother Coupeau undertook to make it, it was always an interminable time before it was ready, because she would fall asleep over the kettle. On these occasions, when the workwomen had finished their lunch, they would do a little ironing whilst waiting for the coffee. It so happened that on the morrow of twelfth day, half-past twelve struck, and still the coffee was not ready. It seemed to persist in declining to pass through the strainer. Mother Coupeau tapped against the pot with a teaspoon, and one could hear the drops falling slowly, one by one, and without hurrying themselves any the more. "'Leave it alone,' said tall Clemence. "'You'll make it thick. Today there'll be as much to eat as to drink.' Tall Clemence was working on a man's shirt, the plates of which she separated with her fingernail. She had caught a cold, her eyes were frightfully swollen, and her chest was shaken with fits of coughing, which doubled her up beside the work-table. 
With all that she had not even a handkerchief round her neck, and she was dressed in some cheap flimsy woolen stuff in which she shivered. Close by, Madame Putois, wrapped up in flannel muffled up to her ears, was ironing a petticoat which she turned round the skirt-board, the narrow end of which rested on the back of a chair, whilst the sheet laid on the floor prevented the petticoat from getting dirty as it trailed along the tiles. Gervaise alone occupied half the work-table with some embroidered muslin curtains over which she passed her iron in a straight line with her arms stretched out to avoid making any creases. All on a sudden the coffee, running through noisily, caused her to raise her head. It was that squinty-eyed Augustine who had just given it an outlet by thrusting a spoon through the strainer. "'Leave it alone!' cried Gervaise. "'Whatever is the matter with you? It'll be like drinking mud now!' Mother Coupeau had placed five glasses on a corner of the work-table that was free. The women now left their work. The mistress always poured out the coffee herself after putting two lumps of sugar into each glass. It was the moment that they all looked forward to. On this occasion, as each one took her glass and squatted down on the little stool in front of the stove, the shop-door opened. Virginie entered, shivering all over. "'Ah, my children,' said she, "'it cuts you in two. I can no longer feel my ears. The cold is something awful.' "'Why, it's Madame Poisson!' exclaimed Gervaise. "'Ah, well, you've come at the right time. You must have some coffee with us.' "'On my word, I can't say no. One feels the frost in one's bones, merely by crossing the street.' End of third part of chapter 6